Hello and welcome to Let the Bird Fly, a podcast about living freely in a world given back to us. This is Wade here in the podcast studio, socially distancing from Mike, uh, who was kind enough to join me for this this session today for our COVID-19 online learning session series. Um, this will be a session for Theology 110, one of my courses, Introduction to Theology, and we're <coughs> excuse me, going to be discussed. Discussing a book by Bo Geert, um, The Hammer of God. Uh, it's a collection of uh, three novellas, um, short novels, uh, stories that he had written, uh, which also served to illustrate, um, I would say, truths about law and gospel, preaching and teaching, um, and uh, faithful pastoral care, um, and how the, I think for all of them, how the parish is the best teacher, as it says, at one point. Um, our plan for this one is that we don't really have a plan. We've been debating, should we do three sessions or just do one longer one? Um, we're going to aim at one longer one, but if we get tired and need a break, then we've agreed. Is that correct, Mike? We'll just yeah. stop and then we'll break it up. So this could be one session or it could turn into multiple for students, if this ends up being one big session, um, it will just count as all three sessions in, in one um, as you work through this book next week, um, and I will get a uh, an email out to you regarding that. Uh, we have done other episodes about Bo Geertz, um with one of our favorite uh, guests. He's done multiple uh, shows with us, I think at least four yeah. or five um i think we've got him every time that we've been out in san diego and we've skyped him in so okay i just put in bo geertz and we have had episode 120 episode 77 episode 50 episode 51 um that uh all deal with bo geertz it looks like in his different works all of those with Brewer Erickson. Uh, so if you want more background on Geertz, I'd encourage you to look at those, episode 120, episode 77, 50, or 51, um, because Brewer's just better at it. Uh, he's just better at giving the, the background. But maybe if we can just talk about the novel in general, um, this is a novel that is used in all the 110 classes. So WLC has two intro classes. It has 105 and 110 and all the 110 classes use uh, this book as the final text of the semester that students will work through. Uh, it's a book that I don't think we read in seminary, Mike, but I would say almost any pastor I know in our friend circle has read it and benefited from it. Um, Dad didn't read it until the parish. and And I hadn't either. Um, but I think it is a, I know um, John Pless, I believe, uses it at Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne. Um, I have his study guide that he's produced for it, so I assume he's still using it. Um, Bo Geertz lived from 1905 to 1998, um, and he was a bishop in the Diocese of Gothenburg um, in the Lutheran Church of Sweden. He was known for being a confessional bishop, um, but as Brewer notes, he wasn't always such. Uh, 
he had been raised, if I'm remembering from Brewer correctly, as an atheist or was an atheist, mm-hmm. um, and then had come back into Christianity, but of a more pietistic kind of revivalistic, like bent early on, and he really grows into confessional Lutheranism. And so it makes sense that these novellas would have people growing deeper into a meaningful, substantive, orthodox faith um, through their own experiences in life and in the parish. Um, I don't think that Mike and I necessarily plan on running through the details of uh, the plot for each novella uh, in a pedantic way for you. Uh, There's two reasons for that. Um, First, listeners... uh, we don't want to ruin it for you, right? We think mm-hmm. you should read it. And B... If you're um, a student, student, you should have read it. You should be reading it or should have read it. And so this is our opportunity to give you big picture stuff relating to it. Um, this is not for us to spoon feed you so you just listen instead of reading it. I like that you knew exactly what I was thinking, there, Mike. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, so why don't we start off with, if we're doing big picture stuff, um, Mike, anything to your history with the book? Um, your experience of it, any per- particular value you found in it? Is it something you find yourself going back to? Uh, if someone comes up to you and, uh, at a pastor's conference or someone in a parish says, I heard about this book, The Hammer of God, what do you think? Uh, what would you have to say, Mike? Yeah, I mean, just maybe a, one preliminary thing. In each of these short stories, there is a wise old pastor, a young pastor who's sort of on fire for Jesus and maybe even popular, and uh but doesn't know anything and the older pastor is kind of like okay just wait and puts him into situations where um this young pastor can kind of learn what the gospel is all about and so if this is important for young pastors seminary students college students to to read because it's kind of like this is going to be your future whether you think it's going to be your future or not and and even if you understand all of this this stuff, <laughs> you still need to be put into it. And I think for maybe a pastor who's aged a little bit, uh, to be able to speak to younger pastors and people in their parish, uh, having read this, I, I think it it would give them some insight in how to relate to people in a very real way. Um, I also like that it's three different. Uh, it's it's all in the same town in Sweden, but it's at different eras, right? So early 1800s, late 1800s, and then right on the precipice of, of World War II. And notice that there's different kinds of, um, there's different temptations for especially a young pastor to say, this is the future of the church. And even though those, let's say, revivals in each three situations was different they all came back down to the same problem and that's helpful for a pastor to say you know what whatever thing right now i'm excited about or the rest of the church is excited about and i'm just quite not sure probably if you dig deep enough it's really coming down to the same thing and that is two kinds of righteousness bound will original sin grace alone all of those kinds of things. And so uh, it, it, I think what the genius of this, uh, these three books put together is that you see historically these things being repeated. Big picture, um, 
The pastor is not supposed to go in there and fix everybody's problem. He's not going to be able to do that. He is going to proclaim. He is going to proclaim this gospel. And his parishioners, who are sinner saints, his parishioners, um, at their weakest moments, are going to try to explain away grace. And you have to let the hammer of God come down with the law and then point them to Jesus Christ. And then the last point I'll make, and then I'll stop talking, is that there are going to be parishioners in your church and there is going to be pastors from now I'm speaking to young pastors there's going to be pastors in your circuit in your district that you look at and you go eh, maybe not the most righteous maybe not the most intelligent maybe not the most put together but they get the gospel and they are your greatest teachers and the quicker you learn that uh, the wiser you'll be yeah and so I think uh, very helpful points that you make there Mike and uh, I think too for for Christians in general, um, pastors and lay people, uh, it's one of the things you take away from the book as well is the role of lay people, faithful lay people in shaping and encouraging um, their pastors as well. And the the role that they take um, in being hearers of the word, but also in applying the word vocationally, I think of Katrina, for instance, someone who comes to mind. Um, the idea, I think, of the family altar, you see encouraged it at several parts. Um, but the danger uh, as well of falling into pietism or rationalism, wanting to go beyond Scripture, and uh, kind of having, uh, you notice that some of these people, they they kind of have a few good books on their shelf. Yeah. They've got the Bible, they've got some postilla Apostle and you know the sermon books, um, you know kind of rootedness. I think that can be can be taken away too, um, and I think for for older pastors, if we have pastors listening to the reminder of why why we got in the game, right? Because yeah. we can easily burn out and forget it's about law and gospel too, and just kind of spin our wheels, um, and to uh, you know to remember at the end of the day what the what the task that's given is. Maybe if we I think uh, the way I, I was thinking we kind of go through is just pick a couple scenes or passages that we found, you know, particularly helpful. And I would say one of the things that we should hit on is in the first novella, um, the opening scene really sets the, I think that it sets before us why Geertz is writing the book. Um, he kind of shows his hand. And this is, you have this man uh, um, who has done his, uh, you know, well, we probably call it PhD. I don't mm -hmm. know. Maybe we call it THD. But he's he's done his doctorate. He's very learned, and now he's got to do his kind of parish time to get certified for ministry. And he's at this party of pastors, and you know it's presented as a. I think the the English would call it posh, mm -hmm. right? It's kind of this posh gathering, and you know he seems a little more in his element. He's comfortable. He can talk about his studies in poetry. Um, but then it turns out there's a parishioner who is dying um, and needs pastoral care. And everybody kind of looks around. No one wants to go to leave the party. Um, and so Savonius is going to get sent. And I think without belaboring things, I'll let you throw in any details you want, Mike. 
Um, but what Savonius learns is that in spite of the letters after his name and all his years of study, in spite of being now a, uh, you know, a Christian minister, he doesn't know what to say to someone on their deathbed. And I think without giving everything away, um, but although you can give away whatever you want, Mike, um, I would say he gets exposed, not that the dying man is being mean, mm -hmm. but he kind of, the shallowness of his thought gets exposed as being, you know, is platitudinal a word? Platitudes? Sure. Um, and trivial um, as this man in the, you know, in agony over considering his own life and sins and wrestling with his conscience, um, doesn't have time for the shallow answers that actually a lot of people are willing to sell, you know, based upon um, during the good times. And so uh, I think the opening gives us a sense of what, what Geertz is doing here with the book. Um, and, and so I, I think both you and I have said, Mike, you know, that theology at the end comes down to the deathbed, right? Mm -hmm. Could you say this on the deathbed? Would you say this on the deathbed? And so I, I found that to be an especially um, important scene for everything that will follow. Uh, and I'll, I'll throw it there to you. And I'm, you can give whatever spoilers no, you want. No, I'm just trying not I'll, to give too many. No, I won't give it away. I, I think... Uh, my, my students, their final test is on each novella. Yeah. And there's questions about each and then who their favorite character is in that. And I, none, of you, none of my students listening to this would do this. The ones who would have already stopped listening at this point, <laughs> and they're just making fudging up notes, right? Um, but uh, I don't want them just to listen to this and then write yeah. down what we said. So Savonius gets exposed in two ways. One is, you know, he's at this posh party, and and like you said, he's in his element, and he he's also in his element because he can kind of maybe look his down his nose upon those older pastors who are maybe not as well educated, or they're just old, you know, they're old fashioned and stuff like that, and. <laughs> So, but he also gets exposed because all of his learning means nothing when he's standing. And 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 Geertz, I think this is probably the, the first novella is probably the uh, the most well written. Yeah, and I, I think it's to me. Um, I don't I don't think at any any point necessarily the the novellas are contrived, mm -hmm. but I would say it's the. The 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 next two uh, seem more formulaic. Sure, because you it's it's kind of a, yeah. a repetition. Um, but the way he describes going into this this little uh, this little peasant uh, farmhouse and uh, the smells of death, right? And he can't handle it, right? In fact, he goes out and throws up, um, and he doesn't know what to say, right? All his learning, uh, he he doesn't know what to say, and so. He's exposed that way where he, he his his education didn't do him justice in a certain it it could not and did not and, and may emphasize could not prepare him for, for the parish. But I think theologically he gets exposed too because he can he can theologically try to figure this all out in the abstract. Right. But now it's a real person with real smells, with real objections. Um, and Time is of the essence because this person is dying and he fails. And it is, uh, it is Katrina, we've already mentioned her, who comes through and uh, speaks the gospel. And uh, that's a lesson he probably never forgot. And, um, and, and I think what's also poignant about that whole scene is that 
the peasants don't hate him for it. Right. They still respect him. Because you kind of expect that to come. You yeah. expect them to be like, we're done with him. Yeah. This guy, what is this, why is he here? And, and you can see Geertz had wrestled with the office of ministry, that it wasn't about the person, but about the office. And so these peasants are like, oh, well, how wonderful you came to bring Christ's body and blood for the forgiveness of sins to this dying man. And, uh, and uh, Savonius feels like a fool. And yet um, that was his job. And, and you realize as a pastor, it takes a while. You're like, oh, it's not about me. And so this is why I think it's the most well-written, not only because he describes, Geertz describes these scenes so well, or at least I think better in the first novella. Um, but he also, I think, p- pulls out of, of the young pastor um, this feeling that he has. I'm so concerned about what my parishioners think about me, and I'm so concerned about what they say behind my back. I'm so concerned about me, right? And it, and it takes a while to get beat that to get beaten out of you um and we can go to you know we can go and to, in each novella well in the first two there's not as much a, a dean figure in the mm-hmm. third i guess with with torvik he's kind of the, the yeah the there's pastor. a there's another pastor around but yeah, yeah. It's not as much. um but uh you know and that you know we somewhat have this in i would say the synodical conference churches, Missouri Synod, Wisconsin, Synod, a lot of this vicar year, and we call that your bishop for the year, where you're like, you're kind of training. Um, this isn't that exactly, but um, you see the skill in the the deans, mm-hmm. and I think like probably like a good bishop with a vicar, um, is that sometimes you, you give them rope, mm-hmm. right? And you say, the only way you're going to learn this is to have to um, tentatio, right? Mm-hmm. To theologically experience it. Um and then other times, though, they kind of pull the rope. And, um, and so I think that's part of the wisdom of, of the dean and of the parish, as you mentioned, yeah, the lay people yeah. willing to do this with them, too, to recognize. And I, I know I had, an, as I began in ministry as a vicar and then as a pastor in a parish, some lay people who were just exceedingly patient that mm-hmm. I know, you know, um, and some even joked as I was leaving after 10 years, you know, about... Uh, how you grow up in the parish mm-hmm. and they, they didn't mean it like, Oh, you were just mm-hmm. a kid before and now mm-hmm. you're an adult. Um, but that, yeah. you know, everyone's learning to get to know each mm-hmm. other and, yeah, and, it's, and it's a dance, especially for these, because you can push away a young person and, and reinforce that idea that these old guys are just old and they don't know what they're talking about. Um, so we, but for Savonius, when he is so much concerned about his reputation, you can go one of two ways, and we all care about a re- reputation. Anybody who says, I don't care what other people think, is lying and uh, protesting too much. Um, we can go one way where we convince ourselves that we don't care, and we become flippant, and we just do whatever we want, and and just try to justify that. And that easily falls into everybody's against me, and you become stubborn, and you become less a pastoral figure. Um, the danger on the other side, of course, is that, um, you know, you, you are just giving people what they want to hear itching ears. And so to, to get to that middle ground where you don't, you're consumed by the office and you understand that it's bigger than you. Uh, you can think about the president of the United States, a good president of the United States is going to say the office is bigger than me. Right. And, uh, I'm not so much concerned about my power. I'm not so much concerned about my reputation 
my book sales after I get out of the office, stuff like that. Nobody's going to get there perfectly, of course. And even the deans uh, are, you know, that's maybe a little jealous of the popular young preacher once in a while, right? Um, and has to remind themselves of the lessons that they learned 20, 30 years before. So I, I think that, that you're right, that, that contrast between the pastor's party and then Savonius going into this peasant's house uh, was probably the best the best part of Geertz, at, at least from a, a writing standpoint. And you're right, he sets off the rest of, of the three novellas. This is what it's going to be about. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I mean, you can, you can somewhat sympathize with, well, I would say those who um, are in ministry, I think, can sympathize. Because it's, it's uh, some can, the seminary can tell you all they want, how you should, uh, here are some ways to possibly conduct yourself at the deathbed or in the face of tragedy. Uh, you know, here's good body posture. Mm-hmm. Um, here's, you know, be good bedside manner. But it is something you just kind of have to learn by doing it. Um, and and so, you, you know, the, the, the resources you have to draw on is basically the scriptures um, and I think Savonius is somewhat exposed for, and I think here Geertz is getting at already at this time, theological study wasn't all that theological, and I think it's even more so now. People can do highly technical uh, doctorates on some aspect of theology, but largely be theologically illiterate in, in whole swaths of uh, other aspects of theology, or, you know, major in an abstraction but not be able to really do theology in 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 the concrete and so uh this um you really the two things you have at a deathbed is the scriptures which hopefully you've been immersed in and which are standing over you and then your love for your people and Savonius comes in and he doesn't really have the scriptures and he doesn't have the love for his people uh, but this will change him to where he says, I want to be a pastor. And he, he wants to, part of the drama that plays out in this is, can he still pastor these people after there's been some some difficulties? I uh, Anything from from the, the first novella there, Mike, that you had well, yeah, marked out that you wanted to, to yeah, bring one, up? One more big thought I've had, and then, and then we'll go to, you know, you and I probably if we had to say this is our favorite line i think we'd probably agree at least in our top three is yours where it's he says this was hardly a civil way to treat one who had taken his doctorate <laughs> no but that is a good line i think we should say that to each other more often like when we're at stuff like yeah. when we're when we go over borderland's house or something yeah. if we're, like there's a barbecue yeah. and then like he doesn't have something that we want yeah. we I mean, just turn it, to each other and say this is hardly by, a civil way to test treat one who by has the taken way the podcast friend pastor borderland uh he had said to me once that just about every vacation once a year he reads this book. Yeah. So he's read it probably more time, certainly more times than how I would I How would you describe him right now? His appearance. So uh, let's go. Let's go. You, anyone who wants tangent. to see Saint John Lutheran yeah, McGuanagall, you can see videos so of Saint John's Lutheran McGuanagall. Pastor Martin and Pastor Borland do a great job there. Um, Pastor Borland, um, like many of us, aren't don't have access to somebody who can cut their hair. I think he probably could trim his beard. I think a he has bit. access to trimmers. I'm least. sure he could, but uh, maybe maybe run run your run a comb through your hair. You know, <laughs> I would say the the top. 
He's he's got a fuller head of hair still than I oh, thought he did. Yes, so he he's he is letting it go. It's uh, and it's like it's bushy all around. So the yeah. top is bushy, and then it's it's bushy down and around the. Uh, it's almost like a halo that goes all the way around. It looks all, uh, kind of prophetic. Yeah, you know, like when like, if you see like some of the like the Jeremiah. Yeah, yeah, like the Bible movies that they kind of they don't have a big budget, but they. They put the guy in robes and then they yeah. give him crazy hair. Yeah, like maybe Charleston Heston and as Moses. You know, I, I'm trying to picture that, but like I would say, if you like Charleston Heston mixed with Seth Rogen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Both, both, both prophets. Yeah, in their own right. Right. Yeah, <laughs> uh, but uh, so let me. I let, let's get back on task here. Um, so I, we've noticed, okay, there is... You seem a little dismissive of me, Mike. I have to say that it's hardly a way to treat a man who has taken his doctorate. Um, <laughs> I, except we have to change it to someone who has paid for a doctorate. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. that's the only thing I did during it. Um, I do say that, like, oh, do you, don't, don't you insist on people... Don't you insist that people call you doctor? And I go, well, I did pay for it. <laughs> Not really earn it, but I, I did pay for it. Um there is the the older pastor in some form. There's a young pastor in some form. There are members that are either taken by this new revival, and then ones that seem to be always seems oh, the, the old Lutheran kind of they they've read their stuff, yeah. they know their stuff. And here I would say just briefly, yeah. sorry for interrupting, but each one does kind of have like a we we mentioned revivalism, but there's like some spirit of the age yeah. culturally yeah. in the church. So this one's going to be rationalism, right? He comes and he's got his cold abstract yeah. degree likes poetry doesn't really see the purpose of any sort of pastoral theology yeah. so here it'll be rationalism then we'll have pietism and liberalism yeah. and um but there's always kind there's always uh, at least one or two women as well that are either taken by the the spirit of the age or not right and so it's kind of the person you kind of you bounce things off of a little bit and and that that person's reaction to the young pastor um, is always very uh, uh, telling, and kind of gives a barometer of of where they where where the person is theologically. Right. right? It's kind of like when someone comes to your door and you kind of check to see if your dog seems to like him or not. <laughs> it's like that. Yeah. So, and then I, I think uh, in my version, page. Not that I'm not saying. These women are dogs. No, don't listen. I'm just saying I trust my dog, and so my yeah. dog's opinion of someone is. Uh, so for you, uh, obviously, those are, those of you who are listening and, and not uh, seeing this on TV, Wade is literally digging a hole for himself. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> on page 100, um, he is talking. This would be the dean, right? Who is talking to Savonius? I think I'm in the right one. Either way, this is a good one. Uh, talking about sin and stuff like that. And, uh, oh, this, this is one I have too. This is only what page again are you? One hundred. This is only picking burrs from your. Oh, coat. I had that was one of mine. I had marked something you can get rid of yourself. But the corruption of sin is something that you cannot put away yourself. For this, you need a redeemer, one who suffers in your place. For otherwise, you might as well give up every thought of heaven right now. Savonius sat in silence. Yeah, this is good old Pastor Linder, who's. I don't know that he's way older. But he's, as Mike said earlier, maybe he's not the flashiest guy, yeah. but he's just a guy who gets the gospel. 
Yeah. So, and I think if you, if you, not that. And so maybe I interrupted you on that, Mike. So you want to read it one more time or I'll read it one more? Because it is, Go it ahead. is good. Go ahead. All right. I'm going to, I'm going to pick up with that you begin. Um, and he's talking kind of about this, uh, you know, this idea that Savonius has come up with these little acts of piety and things that he's given up that set him apart. Yeah, so this is not, I, excuse me, this is not the dean. This is a different pastor speaking. So this so, is Linder, yeah. yeah. And he says, that you begin your day with Bible instead of with Moliere, that you deny yourself a nip of brandy on Saturday nights, that you no longer write coitish verses with double meanings. Um, in other words, that you're not being this hoity-toity fancy rationalist anymore. That is only picking burrs from your coat, something uh, you can get rid of yourself. But the corruption of sin is something that you cannot put away yourself for this you need a redeemer one who suffers in your place for otherwise you might as well give up every thought of heaven right now and i'll let you unpack that now though but uh why did i have that highlighted and underlined too what what do you like about that picking burrs from your coat picture yeah so you know savonius is he realizes that so savonius gets exposed so he is now got to redeem himself right so he's not going to be uh, this person who is just going to say, don't you know I'm a doctor? Okay, very good, Savonius. You are going to be a little bit more pious. You're not going to drink too much. Good for you, right? We call it like we'll give you, you know, sanctification. You're going to read your Bible instead of Shakespeare. Yep. We're going to, you know, Jesus is very proud of you. We're going to give you a gold star on the way out. Um, and And that does not solve his problem, right? And so this is a microcosm his own life trying to justify himself, trying to make himself better is a microcosm of his whole ministry where he is trying to give everybody else to act rightly. Right. You know, so he is this PhD and he comes to this backwater town. And he just can't understand why these peasants can't whatever, you know, and that, and that is a very human tendency. We've all done that at some point, uh, something Wanting to reform ourselves turns into something that has to spill in over in everybody's life. So let's say hypothetically Wade gets fat uh-huh. and um, of not great health. Uh-huh. Now, Wade would clearly never let this happen uh-huh. to himself, right? Uh-huh. Uh, and then Wade decides, everyone else in the family, who has not done the same, uh-huh. um, and plays sports and is active, but you know that no one should have the things that Wade can't yep. have because Wade's gotten fat. Right. And way out of shape, right? Um, or the, uh, you know, the person who struggles with alcoholism and gives up the drink, but now wants to shut down the bars. Yeah. Um, you know, this is uh, we all do it at some point. Yeah. It, it's the spouse, you know, and there's nothing wrong with spouses like doing something to change themselves together. But so, you, we've all done it to our spouses, and our spouses have done it to us. Like to where, you know, like that's more about like. <clears throat> me feeling better about myself to try to change you too. Yeah. But to- yeah. And so that's, that's one, you know, there's quite a few things going on here. The, the other thing I think about is it's, it's a curious passage to me where St. Paul says, you know, where, where, where the law was sin increased. Right. Uh-huh. Like, what does that mean? Right. You know, and then he right away says, we don't mean the law is the, uh, the, the source of sin, but let's take your analogy there where you just say, okay, um, Let's just say Wade is not in tip-top shape. Hypothetically. And, hypothetically. Yeah. And let's say January 1st, he says, I'm going to go on a very strict diet, right? And then every day when he has these hunger pains, every day when he has to get up and do this exercise or whatever, that law that he put on himself 
exposes his sin of the past even more. Yeah, because then hypothetical Wade could be like, I was in really good shape for quite a while. Like, what if hypothetically I came to college and then just let myself go? <laughs> and then I go, why did I make right. six years of decisions? Right. That led and, here, and, and so in a, and then I come up on the third floor hypothetically, and Mike's in his office, and, and you know hypothetical Mike is trimmer than hypothetical me, and he's eating something that I have forbade myself, and I kind of look at him contemptuously and then go to my office, and so sin upon sin upon sin, not only the law exposes your sin even more, like you're reminded of it all the time. But then you see, you, you become jealous, you become self-righteous towards other people as well, right? So, you know, underneath all this, and we'll be a little bit more in the second novella, this idea of these the physical things and, and Christian freedom, these physical things are bad, right? Like, um, you know, and, and then you have the, the old, I think I'm in the second novella correctly, Um you know, the young pastor, not to get ahead of ourselves, but, you know, would never, ever take alcohol. And the, and, and the maid, the, the house mother, never, ever would take alcohol. And then the, the young pastor is like, I don't think I'm going to have coffee anymore. And the, and the, and the house mother is like, oh, wait a minute. No, coffee's righteous, right? Yeah. And so you're drawing all these lines here. And so those types of things like alcohol or, or whatever it is, um, they expose something deeper about law and gospel and Christian freedom. And so Lindner says, oh, good for you. You, you picked off the low-hanging fruit. Yeah. Big deal. You have not solved the problem. And you're preaching, and this is what I think really hurts Savonius, your preaching of those things has not only not helped your parishioners, but you've driven them in even more despair or on the opposite side a very annoying self-righteousness yeah um you know uh deutschlander used to always say um professor deutschlander and he probably got it from somewhere else but reform a sinner and you still have a sinner yeah. <clears throat> and uh in that you either have a despairing sinner because they've fixed this one problem but they they still don't feel whole um or you have a pharisee mm-hmm. and uh you know I hate to keep going back to the addiction analogy, but you see this in, with addiction as well. When, when people have an addiction, whatever it might be, and then they, they go for treatment, it's the, the, the therapist or the counselor or the program doesn't say, yep, just stop this thing and everything will be great. Mm-hmm. They say stopping this thing is going to be hard because you're going to have to address all the things that you're doing this thing not mm-hmm. to address, right? And so um, that we not treat specific sins as uh, the disease, but recognize them as the symptoms, right? Um, and so if you stop that one sin, we realize that doesn't change the condition. Um, and so, uh, you know, let's say hypothetically, Wade didn't like going to the doctor, and mm-hmm. so he almost never mm-hmm. went to the mm-hmm. doctor. And hypothetically, he's probably needed a root canal for mm-hmm. roughly the last time he went to a doctor, or told- dent- to a dentist was hypothetically six years ago and they yeah. said you probably yeah. need a root and canal. Hi- hypothetically Wade's telling his friends all the time about the pain it's in been his a mouth. terrible pain yeah. hypothetical yeah. Wade has been um and just like and hypothetically his friends lathering like, why don't you just go to the dentist yeah. and putting yeah. ice um you know it uh sometimes the the pain of that thing is actually a benefit uh 
when it comes to sin, right? What does that pain do? It reminds you there's something wrong. So the sane person should want to address it. The the, the sane person should say, I need to go get that root canal because there's pain, right? It's probably telling you so that you don't lose like four teeth eventually, which would probably not be a good strategy, you know. Um, but in that way uh, that when someone loses that struggle with sin and then they think they've, they're done struggling with sin, it, it's like when, when someone has a condition but doesn't experience pain, it can even be more dangerous, right? And so what law and gospel do, what law does is it stokes up, it increases sin because it it inflames it a little bit, right? So you can feel it. Um, and so the danger for like a Savonius who thinks he's given up, he's pulled the burrs off his coat is that he he now might start to think he doesn't have that lost condition anymore. Um, and that can be the danger in Christian circles too, you know, um, someone goes to the right schools or someone comes to this campus and they follow the student handbook and they go to chapel. Um, and, you know, and I, I'll admit, Mike, I think we've both said before that sometimes we look at some students and we just go, you got to you gotta have some fun, mm-hmm. right? Like, not that you got to go sin, but like, mm-hmm. <clears throat> you know, there's some who they just seem marvelously pious. You go, mm-hmm. man, this kid, I wish I was that sincere. Mm-hmm. You know, I wasn't that sincere till I was like, 37 you know um but uh but the danger can be even then that that christianity can easily become moralizing then because we we fail to see the key thing which is our need for the gospel um and so this burrs off the coat it just becomes here's seven steps to this or four Mm -hmm. steps to that and here's these basic rules to follow um, and, uh, and that I think can become a real danger. And it's so easy for us to say, now we got the gospel. Now we move on to the burrs. Like right. you don't get it. And, and you end up, and you'll hear preachers even say sometimes, oh, hopefully not in our circles, out. but I have heard it said flat in our circles, out. you've accepted Jesus as your, uh, savior, but not your Lord. No, uh, <laughs> it's all over the place, whether we admit it or not, because it's our default position, right? We, we want to go and do, we want to, we want to improve. And so, um, but we're uh, like Peter who says at the transfiguration, let's build some tents yeah, and do yeah. some. You're almost, you're almost inevitably going to either imprison yourself with more law or you're going to try to imprison somebody else yeah. with law. And so Christian freedom goes out the window. So Savonius, yeah, I mean, I think that's probably good for... I think so. Without giving away I too like many I like that you things. picked the same thing I dog-eared. Oh, yeah. I got... Look, we probably could go... You have more dog-eared than I do. I'm very impressed with you. I am not a big dog-ear because... I'm anal about books, yeah. but this one's already so marked up that I I told myself the other night when I was reading through it again, I said, probably dog-eared now. I don't like doing it, but then I'd, I'd rather... You're hard on your books, though, in general. Like, I, I've, I've seen I don't your like, books. Uh, and... um, it just seems easier to me than carrying around a pencil. Although this one, I had a pencil and dog-eared. Yeah. So, I'm not judging you for it. I'm just... Yeah. I like to think that someday I'll leave my books behind and like they'll be still somewhat pristine. Well, that's great though, because so, I've had books that have been left behind. And they just have highlighted. I'm like, sweet. I just have to read the highlighted part. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, the next one uh, is going to be uh, we're going to be introduced to uh, Pietism here as uh, the new rector. So this is same parish, but it's over generations. Mm-hmm. So he's going to get a new. Um, pastor or minister 
who's going to be sent to him. And it says now that this one has had a bad string of vicars uh, or assistants, however we want to speak of it. And, uh, and so he wants one now who hopefully is at least pious. And he's going to get more than he uh, had asked for. <laughs> um, someone who comes and is a pietist. Now, uh, I'll throw it to you first, Mike, if you want. But when sometimes people get really confused when they hear Lutherans say something's pietistic or yeah, pietism. Yeah. Because piety is good, yeah. right? What do we mean by that? Yeah, so uh, <clears throat> pietism is a movement. So a lot of times people will, will get trapped into this thinking. Oh, you know, the pietist is the guy who's like, hey, guys, we shouldn't get drunk. No, that's not. That's and not. Then, I'm not a pietist, right. so I'm going to get drunk, right. which is reverse pietism. Right. So and then you get somebody who says, well, isn't it called even isn't calling somebody a pietist pietist? You know, and that way. think about it this way. Think about capitalism and greed. Those are not the same thing. One may enhance the other one. The other one may be the cause of the other, but one's a system of economics. The other is an adjective, uh, 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 not a virtue, the opposite of a virtue, right? Um, pietism may lead to that sort of piety where you're holier than thou. Um, it may be the driving force, but pietism is a movement. And pietism's movement, I think, is... Uh, summed up in two contrasts. The one is objective versus subjective. The other is physical versus uh, spiritual. So the subjective over the objective, not saying that the objectivity of Jesus dying on the cross is not true. What they're saying is we know that that's cold hearted stuff. That's just facts. What we need to know is, am I a Christian? It's a curved inward and so throughout this especially the second novella but it's i think throughout the whole is i'm not quite sure you're a christian by this outward confession yeah. like do you are you really and it comes up with christian. what people wear what people yeah. drink um what they play like yeah. it can yeah and so that 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 will lead to the uh spiritual the inside spiritual it's almost a little gnosticism there right. over against the the Outward, so that gets played out. Downplay of the sacraments, physical sacraments. Downplay of the institutional church, and uh, the inner spirituality. And it's very easy then to end up in that kind of piety where I'm a true Christian, you're not, and I can see that by your life versus my life. And and that is so dangerous because somebody, again, is either going to fall into the ditch of of I'm better than everybody else, or if they're cursed with honesty. <laughs> They're going to fall into despair. Yeah, and, and that's something, pietism is something that has roots in our, our own synod. Um, it's a default religion yeah, of America. and I mean, the Wisconsin that really began is kind of this mishmash of Lutheran, Reformed, and Pietist. Um, but so some people might have grandparents or great-grandparents who, you know, um, if you were a Christian, then you didn't play cards. Or if you played cards, you only used certain cards or played certain games. And you didn't dance, and so a Lutheran school wasn't going to have a dance because it was a vertical expression of a horizontal desire, um, as one professor used to used to joke. Um, you didn't buy insurance because don't you trust Jesus? Yeah. Um, you know, a lot of these things that still floating around. And it's not. It's, some of these things aren't bad, right? Mm -hmm. Like all of us would say, there's probably a point at which dancing does become inappropriate, <laughs> right? Um, those of us who went to high school. 
uh, in the 90s, remember songs like uh, There Ain't Nothing Wrong With a Little Bump and Grind. Mm-hmm. Right now, Mike, you went to Lutheran High School. Mm-hmm. Did you guys have dances in MLS? Um, I think I recall maybe we had like at the end of the year banquet, okay. which was our version of prom. We got dressed up. But probably the music was somewhat limited. I'm sure, yeah. Yeah, now anyone who went to a large public high school um, in the 90s and, you know, something like Bump and Grind came on, you saw what probably stopped being dancing mm-hmm. um, and became, uh, there were teachers walking around saying, mm-hmm. okay. Don't do that. Stop that. Bad. <laughs> but, you know, they should have just had like spray bottles like you do with a dog. Like, <laughs> you know, <clears throat> um so dancing can be. Uh, there may be times where someone, uh, their view towards insurance or their savings or whatever else becomes sinful. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, get, playing cards can at some point become sin if, you know, you're, you lost your family's house, mm-hmm. you know, playing poker. Uh, okay, I'm not going to make that joke. Um, <laughs> but uh, but this, this, this notion of, Pietism kind of trivializes the faith because it makes it about superficialities. Um, and, and maybe to interject here, there is, for lack of a better word, a conservative and a more liberal pietism too, and they're really yep. the same problem. So somebody, oh, we're so liberated from that that old, you know, women have to wear dresses down to the ankles and no, you can't have coffee and you can't play cards and stuff like that. That doesn't solve the problem um, because you're not really dealing with sin and not really preaching the gospel. If you replace it with just, I know where all of my food is sourced. Right. And you don't. Right. Um, and it becomes, it's the same problem. Um, it's the same curved inward. I'm doing things to prove to myself that I'm righteous. It's a, it probably the best way to talk about pietism is the age old problem of being curved inward. Yeah. That reminds me, they're talking about this meat and poultry shortage we might have, Mike. Um, how would you feel about going in on some chickens with me? <laughs> we have people that had that grew chickens and would like. Yeah, but I'm, would you want to? We have plenty of chicken right now. Right, but f- for the future. Like to raise them? Yeah. Like where are you going to raise them? For eggs and stuff. I suppose I you could eat them if you wanted to, but I'm not going to kill them. I don't think the city of Milwaukee. I think they got bigger things to worry about in chicken coops. There was someone a few blocks from us the other day that was pew, 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 pew. I highly doubt they got time <coughs> to check for chickens. Chicken coops. I bet you're allowed to have chickens in Milwaukee. <sighs> I really doubt it. It's a lot of work. We could have chickens and name them each after like a prophet. Okay. You know, they'd be like, call you on the phone and be like, Mike, a back got out. Yeah. I've been I, looking for him everywhere. I hope the fox didn't get him. Yeah. Because we have a fox in our neighborhood too. Yeah. Well, then they'd have to be in my neighborhood. It just got really dark in this room. Yeah. The sun kind of moved. I think there was God's sign for us to stop talking about chickens. Okay. Well, think about it, though. I I'll feel think like about it, it. I thought about it. I just don't want to go it alone. I, I feel yeah. like... I, my, I, could, I, could, I could find what we need to do, and I've seen it happen. I've, I've gotten eggs from chickens. They're, yeah. they're not all, they're not going to be That's white. That's where eggs tend to come from. Yeah. They're not, but they're, what I'm talking about is they're not going to be bleached white. They're not going to be all no, the same the size. No, the brown eggs are the best ones. There's, there's different colors than brown too. 
But just so we, you know. I think we would really try to deal with the brown ones. <laughs> okay. So uh, I, I'm saying I'm capable of this, but I don't think we have the property for it. I'm going to Google it later. Okay. <laughs> All right. So Fritfeld, this is uh, who we're dealing with, with uh, the second novella. And if our pronunciations are off, deal with it. Uh, you know, I'm, the Scandinavian languages are not my strong suit. And so, uh, how do you pronounce the town? Odessa, I guess, is what I normally say. What do you say? I was gonna say I don't know Odessa, but I always tell my know. students before we start. I say if there's words you're not sure how to say, just say them quickly and with confidence, yeah. and we'll all respect that. So, yeah. and they show that same respect to me. <laughs> it's kind of like when there's an Old Testament reading with a bunch of names, yeah. and you didn't remember to practice it as yeah. much as you should, yeah. you know, on a, before Sunday reading. Yeah. And so on Sunday, you're like, you go. You go whole hog with whatever seems right on yeah. the spot, and you just try to do it with such a confidence that no one afterwards is going to come with like their old King James Bible with all the inflection right. symbols and be like, "Actually, and, I think it's right. you know." And the people who really know, like it's it's the same thing with like European cities, too. You know, like there's the there's the way the natives say it, and right. then there's the way the English people say it, and and like you know Cologne what, and Kelm. right? You know, I'm like, whatever. Whatever. If you want to feel like you have to be superior and, uh, you know, suggest that I say it in a different way, you know, I'll go. I'll it's go like people go. with Detroit and Detroit or Milwaukee yeah. and Milwaukee. Yeah. Missouri and. Missouri. Missouri. All right. Okay. We got, we, we, we got off, off topic again. All right. You, you predicted well that we'd get about halfway before we get tired. <laughs> Friedfeld, go. Okay. So he's going to be very influenced by uh, pietism. And so I have a scene that I had um, that I had picked for this. Um, and I'm guessing you might have it dog-eared too, but it's on page 122. And so Fritfeldt is the new assistant um, to the dean or curator, whatever you want to call it, um, in this parish. And he's come and he wants to have this frank discussion uh, with his new uh, dean or as we might call it in our circles, bishop. Mm-hmm. Um and he says uh, to him, he says, I want you to know from the beginning, sir, that I am a believer. Good for you. And the dean, yeah. So I'm going to skip around and just pick set lines. But he says, uh, the dean says, so you are a believer? I'm glad to hear that. What do you believe in? And <laughs> Fritfeld is kind of taken aback and stumbles around. And he says, but, sir, I'm simply saying that I am a believer. The dean replies, well, yes, I hear that, my boy. But what is it that you believe in? Uh, and he doesn't know what to say. Fritfeld goes on for a while. And he says, "Well, well, in, in Jesus, of course. I mean, I, I mean, I've given him my heart." And and there's going to be this this great reply. The older man, his face becomes solemn as the grave, and he says, "Do you consider that something to give to him?" And Fritfeld starts to cry. Right? <laughs> like he doesn't. He's perplexed. And notice, this is something that I I do appreciate about the older pastors, or the Orthodox pastors that we see in here. Um, because it smacks of what Jesus does in the Gospels. Too think of the rich young man who comes mm-hmm. to Jesus. He's like, okay, let's play this out. Let's, yep, sure. you know, and he's not trying to be rude. He's just okay. Well, then explain it to me. Uh, and he says to him, he says, "You are right, my boy, and it is just as true that if you think you are saved because you give your uh, Jesus your heart, you will not be saved." He goes on to say, "The heart is a rusty old can on a junk heap, a fine birthday gift indeed." But a wonderful Lord passes by and has mercy on the wretched tin can, sticks his walking cane through it, 
and rescues it from the junk pile and takes it home with him. That is how it is. Um, and I, I always think that's a, a striking right. kind of scene. And and the way we do it in, in our, the way we go back and forth is, you know, oh, well, Jesus, Jesus must feel very lucky to have you. Yes. Yeah. You know, th- thanks for giving him that your heart. Yeah. Um, you've got it backwards, right? Like, do you, I mean, and I think that Prickfeld like, is like deflating. It's like Cobain saying, uh, I've been on a Nirvana kick because Post Malone did this Nirvana cover. Did you watch that? You don't, uh-huh. you're probably not a big Nirvana fan, huh? Um, I like two of their songs. Just two? Mm-hmm. Okay. And, uh, but uh, is it a David Bowie cover or whatever that he does where he sings? Uh, it was the MTV when people used to actually watch it for music. And, uh, you know, he sings, Jesus, don't want you for a sunbeam. <laughs> you know, it's or like Fight Club where Brad Pitt has one. You are not a precious little snowflake. That's right. <laughs> this is what he's kind of getting at. Yeah. And, and so Fritfeld is deflated. Yeah. And rightfully so. Because... Whether he admits it or not, he is pretty proud of himself here. Yeah. And so that the pietism, you know, pietism is a big, it's a big word too. We didn't, it's no way we could do justice to it. And Sweden, it's a, there, there's different kinds of pietism and big, you know, it, it's just too much. Um, so you can rightfully call somebody a pietist and it actually would be a compliment in certain circumstances. But in particular, this idea that, the objectivity of what you believe in is not as important as the fact that you subjectively believe it, right? The subject believes rather than the object that is being believed is more important. And so you have uh, this being turned inward, right? And, and how can you figure that out? Well, it's by people's, people's behavior there, and that's where you get into them. Uh, physical versus versus the um, um, the spiritual there, so yeah, I mean that's just such a great line, right? You know, like I'm sure Jesus is very happy that he received your heart. What a great birthday present you gave him, right? Um, as if uh, I, I, Pietists should really do this. Like on Christmas Eve, they should give presents to Jesus instead of the other way around. That would be fit more fitting of their of their theology. So yeah. Good line. I had that one. That's probably the most famous of the lines in the second novella for sure. Um, and so without giving away the basic plot of this, Fritfell, though, eventually is going to come to realize um, he needs something more objective than his own inner faith. Um, he needs more some, something more solid to rely on um, than human behavior. And something else that's often will happen in these novellas is this is partly going to be to come through uh, his contact with sermon books of preachers of previous ages. Uh, and so, uh, um, you know, the influence of the past on this. I will uh, I will say to another one of my favorite scenes in here, um, and I'm not going to give away the whole scene, but is with, with Daniel and Johan, um, this dispute about the cow. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And Fritfell, who has been so much about human behavior, co- is unable to bring peace in the situation. He's not sure who, which one's a Christian. Who's yeah. Christian? Like, I got to find out who's the Christian, and then I'll know what to do. And yeah. and, and uh, the rector, I think it's called, he's called the rector, not the dean in here, I keep saying to him, is going to come and treat them both like Christians and his parishioners mm-hmm. as sinner saints and uh, kind of work peace. And, and this is when Fritfold starts to suspect maybe the rector's a Christian <laughs> uh, <coughs> as well. 
Um, and so here he will start to kind of uh, question the, the revival. And he also begins to see this leads to people in the congregation essentially becoming Baptists. Uh, they're, they're starting to question the validity of baptism. Mm-hmm. And here we see the subjective, subjectivity of pietism leads away from the objectivity of the means of grace. And so he comes to see the importance of faith resting in an objective thing, um, in this case in Christ, which is, is in word and sacrament. And here I'll just I'll throw it to you real quick, Mike, too. Another thing that comes out in a lot of these um, is the liturgy as a tool for mm-hmm. helping people become rooted or come back to their roots. Um, why do you think Geertz includes that, or, or what do you see as the importance of, of that? Yeah, and I think he's, he's probably speaking uh, to, the, to the pastors out there because he says, look how the people appreciate it, number one. But number two, this is this is for you. And so there's a, a handful of scenes there. But in the second novella, I think probably most poignantly, if I remember correctly, you know, I didn't have the time to get my sermon ready. You know, this this going to be this great thing where I'm going to get people to, you know, uh, finally change their minds and truly become Christian, not just Christian in name only, but truly become Christian, right? Uh, um, and, uh, and so he gets up there and he's going through the liturgy like he normally does. And maybe he'll add a few words or a little flourish there because all of this is just old stuff, you know, this, this old stuff that nobody really cares about, whatever. And in that time of great self doubt, um, the words of the liturgy hit home and they, he's, these are like manna from heaven right? Exactly what he needed to hear and kind of the realization, uh, that, and and he didn't point this out, but, but just the realization probably for young pastors, um, that, uh, this liturgy spared your parishioners from you, yeah, from all the stupid things that you said and tried to fix. And And from your your ups and downs and the whims of every week. And so that that is not a call to keep the liturgy, you know, the the historic divine service, just to keep it. It's actually a call to keep it fresh in the sense that we produce good music, that we do it well, that we we go and find all the variety that is out there from from the the church's wisdom, um, and that we do it well. That we don't we don't it's equally bad to throw it out and to let it die a slow, painful death because you didn't teach it. You didn't care about it and you didn't do it well. So not that Geertz is trying to necessarily make that a lesson, but it, I think that is a good application of what he's saying here. And it's kind of in the background, isn't it? Right. The other thing is, and it corresponds with what you said, these, there's always this group that has this, uh, uh, you know, book of devotions or sermons from a generation or two ago and they know it well right and uh maybe the young pastor almost rolls their eyes at rolls his eyes at them but there is a point where one dude i think it was in this one where he, maybe it was in the third novella i can't remember where the pastor just reads a sermon yeah. <laughs> right and there's no heart there right that's not that's the opposite of pietism that's just the dead orthodoxy right and yet that was very meaningful to a lot of people. Um, I can't remember which one that was, what that was in, but, uh, the same way with prayers, right? Like it's okay to use the prayers. I, I think the it church. is. I think it is Fritfeld on the Transfiguration yeah. Day because he reads yeah. from Chartau. Is that the yeah, name? yeah? And and, and that one of the older ladies, um, you know, it's kind of like 
I don't think she said it this way, but like, oh, that was the best sermon you ever preached. And he said, I had Chartaud standing behind me. Yeah. And yeah. then they kind of bring out the point, well, Christ always stands behind right. good preachers. Right, right. So, yeah. Uh, that, that, I think probably one and two are my favorite novellas, but three makes some good points, too, as we go from, okay, rationalism is the big one. Um, how do I fix this problem of sin? The second one is this, I can't find out who the true Christians are and how can I make the non-Christians real Christians, this inner pietism kind of thing. Or Fred Felt, yeah. And then, and then the, in the third one, it's going to be more kind of a libertine sort of like, not really quite sure that there's an inner, it's all connected, right? There's, it's, there's inner spirit. There's a spirit yeah. of God, but it's not Theological really grounded. Theological liberalism. Yeah. Uh, and, and here we don't mean liberalism like left, right, politically. No. Um, it's a moving beyond the text or a standing over the text. Um, the, the pastor, the main pastor is going to be Torvik. Um, and his friend Gunner is going to really fall into this more and more, um, where, you know, kind of think of in modernity, theological liberalism um, of, you know, uh, historical criticism and, you know, the, you're going to just have to pick what seems like the word of God to you, uh, which is to, to try to handcuff the word of God. And so uh, this is not liberalism in any way in a political sense, what we're talking about. But uh, you don't know, think mainstream kind of theology today, mm-hmm. mainline Protestant mm-hmm. theology, kind of just generic and, well, you can believe this if you want or you can believe that um, <clears throat> type of thing, mm-hmm. which leads to libertinism as, mm-hmm. as you hit there. Mike. And, and maybe, I don't know if, if this is what... Gerhard Ferdy meant when he said this, but and I can't remember where he found it. I got a searching button. But there's a phrase, and it was probably 20 years ago when I came across it. Decadent pietism. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's what I he's after here. A, a decadent pietism, um, where it's still kind of an inner thing. It's against the objectivity of of the gospel, and in particular the objectivity of the texts. And fine with the history of the church, yeah. right? Um, fine even with the liturgy and stuff. That's fine. That's good. Um, fine with the, the Bible, the parts that you can somewhat yeah. trust. Um, but I look inside myself. I find my truth. I'm happy with myself and my it's truth. self-affirming Christianity. And uh, I'm not going to maybe judge other people, you know, until I get bored and uh, then I'm going to start judging other people. <laughs> I'm going to find some kind of law right there. Um, and But this is kind of the early stages of this. It doesn't get into kind of what we have today, which is just this hypercritical of of everybody, right? This yeah. is just as much more like live and let be kind of thing, and I'm not going to get too much offended by your Ten Commandments. But don't put, don't, don't, don't push it, buddy. Okay? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so inevitable conclusion of, 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 of a couple generations of shoving down the 10 commandments down everybody's throat. Right. Right. I mean, Methodism, which pietism leads to this logically, um, or to rationalism. I, it's no coincidence that both Nietzsche and Kant were raised in pietist Lutheran mm-hmm. homes. In fact, both, both had fathers, I believe who were pietist Lutheran mm-hmm. pastors, um, you're going to react one way or another. You're going to be like Kant and be obsessed with morality. 
um, or you can be like Nietzsche and want to toss it all out. Yeah, and I think, you know, we see this in the history of American churches too. I mean, 75 years ago, 100 years ago, if you're a Methodist, oh my goodness, were you straight-laced. Yeah. And Methodism is one of the mainline denominations, not all Methodists. I don't even different. think they smoked weed back then. <laughs> no. Now they're very much on the front lines of uh, very progressive type programs and stuff like that. Um, there is a conservative wing, of course, in Methodism still today. But Every mainline, yeah. every mainline yeah. confessional group yeah. has that. But, but I mean, in, in really in a couple generations, mean, a couple generations, you saw quite a quite a shift there, uh, and 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 it's all true in all mainline denominations. But Methodism sticks out to me a little bit because of, of the extremes on that. Um, so, the, the, it's the same kind of core problem. Yeah. So, um, go ahead. I, I guess maybe I th- we talked about this a little bit before, but. I think for both of us, the first novella is our favorite. Mm-hmm. Was that right? With Savonius? Second. I, first and second. I like both, yeah. Um, and the third is uh, I think the third is helpful. And I think the third kind of gets at some of the modern challenges. But it's I'm just less taken with it, mm-hmm. I would guess, I'd mm-hmm. say in general. Although I do like Torvik and his wife is a, is a solid character. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I wonder, and I don't know if he meant this, but in each of the novellas, the, there if you take the three pastors, there is a development in them, right? Pure rationalism to at least I care about Christianity to Torvik still kind of wishy-washy in the beginning, but, but is a little bit more mature that way. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so I think, you know, the third novella, the big takeaway, um, is that to neuter law and gospel, um, is, is to, in essence, lose Christianity. And I don't want to give away the entire plot, but Gunner kind of falls away from the faith mm-hmm. um, and dies in, in war. Mm-hmm. Um, but Torvik will get a letter finally after Torvik had kind of confronted him before he went off uh, that expressed repentance. And uh, and it, it's a reminder, uh, I think, that um, of all of them, this is the chapter that seems the most to be a reminder that you need the law in full force too, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, Gunner tries to run away from the law yeah, and, and the, pretend like he's not running, but he yeah, catches up to him. And the first two novellas are, are kind of like the abuse of the law when you when you become too legalistic. Um, here, I guess, would be the abuse of the law when you disregard it. Um, and so that he needs to um, have his conscience kind of reawakened through the law um, so that the gospel then has meaning. Um, and, and here I think you see in this last book um, with uh, theological liberalism that question of what gives Christianity meaning, right? Um, that it's not just a going through the motions, that it's not just a, a cultural thing that we've inherited, um, that it's not just a, what you do, right? You just, as, as a, if you're a good middle-class person, you know, you just, yeah, you belong to a church, but it's not going to take over your life, mm-hmm. right? Um, and I think, uh, you know, that's kind of what is, is getting at with this one. And, and so, you know, I guess I, I'll throw it to you. What, we've got to be over an hour time-wise, huh? Hour seven. All right, there's three classes, so technically I should get 50 times. 
Yeah, you should get so a lot. That's 150 minutes, which is you're, that's two and a half hours. You're welcome, students. So what are we at right now? One hour and seven and a half minutes. Okay, we're okay. So um, students read each novella. What I will, I'll ask you, Mike, for our day and age, right, and for the church today, and you can take that as either the church today meaning our circles, which I would say mm-hmm. tends to be, you know, old school synodical conference, Lutheranism, Wells, ELS, mm-hmm. Missouri, you know, stuff like that. Um, or for American Christianity as a whole, which novella would you have them read? Oh, you know, if you just I'm, got to pick one. Yeah, I mean, I mean, the third is makes the biggest point as to our current situation when it comes to mainline Christianity, as we said. Um, but I think I, 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 may go, I may go number two. And the reason for that, the second novella, and the reason for that is I, I think that kind of revival, that, that kind of sense that if we just had a revival, if we just changed something, then everything would be good in the church. I think um, I, I think it's it's clearer in that, um, and I think there's also a better conclusion in that. I like it better that the Fritfelt comes around and says, "Okay, you know, Savonius." At the end, we don't we don't hear the rest of the story. We're just kind of told that it maybe doesn't end super super great. I mean, I think he gets it, but you know, he's confronted and okay, maybe I, and he kind of apologizes. Spoiler alert, yeah, spoiler yeah, moves on. Um, you know, and uh, I think the ending of novella three is the best. The beginning of novella one is the best. Um, probably the better lines are in the novella number one. Um, but uh, I think two, I think is the best one. Yeah. I, I would say one is my favorite. Um, Three, perhaps the most timely, but I would say at the end of the day, if you had to read what one. I really like about two is it does really ground things well in the means of grace and in, uh, you know, Christ alone. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, so I think that that's extremely helpful. Um, students, this was meant to be big picture, kind of ground the book for you, um, unpack some stuff like we would have done. I'm in the presentations and the application discussions that we normally do at this time of year. Um, Hopefully we did not give you enough material to regurgitate plot summaries um, on your exams. Uh, It's not hard stuff to read. Um, Don't get worried if you're not sure how to... Now, the good news is you don't have to say any of the names out loud Mm -hmm. in front of the class now. Um, You don't have to get lost on all the places and that. Uh, Just kind of follow the general stories. Um, listeners, we hope you got something out of it. Listeners, if you have not read Hammer of God, I'm going to go ahead and say uh, I recommend it to you, lay yeah. people and pastors. I, I think pa- it's, it's, you know, if you had to pick 10 books besides the, the, the real classics like Walter's Law and Gospel and stuff that were on every Lutheran pastor's shelf, I'd put this in there. I think I, think I would as yeah. well. Um, we're sorry, Pastor Bordelin. Uh, we 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 gave him a compliment and I, and it, cut him down. It was well, it didn't even. Well, I came we weren't even cut him down. I said I was impressed with how thick his hair yeah, was. And, but he, we we mentioned that he is a he really reads this just about every year, and that's yeah. that's good advice. And then talked about his appearance. If he is upset, I'm I'm gonna get him a present. I'll take him something down, leaving us. What do you think he'd like? 
Oh, I don't. Well, you know, I heard he likes. Um, what do they call them at Quick Trip? Roller dogs. Roller dogs. Yeah. Oh, I, could, I think he likes I those roller take dogs. A, take like they roller. come in like a little, like a little sleeve almost. Yeah. Yeah, like two or three of those. Well, maybe I'll have to swing some down, leave them on his uh, his porch. Um, but otherwise, I, this will wrap up our COVID online learning series for Theology experience, 110 now. COVID online learning experience. Is that what we called it? That's what I've been calling okay. it. And uh, you have no more to record for any of your classes. Good. I, so far as I know, and this is the kind of thing I would mess up. So, But as so far as I know, I have no more to record. And so... Um, Students, uh, be in touch if there's anything I can be helpful with. You know the assignments you have left. Be uploading your notes, um, but don't be shy if I can be of any assistance. Listeners, those who have been listening through these or to those that seemed of interest, we thank you for doing so. We know we've kind of blown up your podcast feed, um, but we thank you for sticking with us, and we hope you benefited from it. If you found any of these helpful, uh, don't be shy. Share them with friends. Um, This is a chance to kind of audit a little bit the type of things we'd be talking about in theology classes at Wisconsin Lutheran College uh, for free. And we have fun. Yeah. You know, I mean, we're being recorded. Imagine what we say when we're not being recorded. Yeah. I've had students give me lists sometimes of my best lines. Some of them I thank God no one ever snitched on me. (laughs) So um, the, uh, but we, we appreciate it. Uh, we're going to be getting back then, I suppose, to trying to do an episode and a winging it each week. That'd be that'd be helpful. I think we can do it. Um, now with Zoom, we might be able to get some guests on through yeah. Zoom and, yeah. and record that way too. So we'll see. Um, I don't even remember where we left off with our winging it. It's been so long. So we had to start going doing this. And, I know. But I suppose we'll get back into the life of Luther. Yep. Unless we veer into another series for a bit and then go back to I it. I think we should finish the Luther one. We're so close. We have a, yeah. <laughs> uh, we're like, we're like 40. 40 sessions in and we made it 10 years. <laughs> yeah, we've got another 40 to go. We, uh, we've we got one episode set to come out. Yeah. Who's going to produce that? I, well, I would imagine that Dr. Hermanson, that her husband would want the honor of doing that. Uh, I'm, sure I, he's, I'm sure he's right on it. I would. I would guess that. Yeah. So. so, All right. Well, we thank you for listening. Students, um, be in touch if there's anything we can be helpful with. Uh, we hope you are weathering this uh, challenging semester uh, as best as possible. We are really hoping to see you in the fall on campus. That's our prayer. That's our hope, um, to see you in the fall on campus. And uh, until then, whatever happens, and it's, April's almost over. I'm afraid of May. But April threw some uh, some curveballs. But no matter what happens, whatever May brings and beyond, uh, we hope you'll all join us in uh, letting the bird fly.